Section 23 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Third Decade, Chapter 1, The Black Death, Part 3. Wages rose so high as to swallow up the farmer's profit, and it frequently became a question whether it would be more ruinous to leave the crops ungathered or to comply with the exorbitant demands of the laborers. At last, in June 1349, Parliament, not yet having been able to meet, the King issued this proclamation addressed to the sheriffs of the several counties. Seeing that a great part of the people, and principally of laborers and servants, is dead of the plague, and that some, seeing the necessity of masters and the scarcity of servants, will not work unless they receive exorbitant wages, and others choosing rather to beg in idleness than to earn their bread by labor, we have ordained, by the advice of our prelates and nobles and other skilled persons, that every able-bodied man and woman of our kingdom, bond or free, under sixty years of age, not living by trading or having of his or her own wherewithal to live, shall, if so required, serve another for the same wages as were the custom in the twentieth year of our reign, and etc., and seeing that many sturdy beggars, validi mendicantes, as long as they can live by begging in charity, refuse to labor, no one under pain of imprisonment shall presume to nourish them in their idleness. The king and his council had still to learn that legislative enactments are powerless to control the operation of economic laws, and that wages must in the long run find their own level, in spite of menaces on the part of employers or combinations on the part of the employed. When Parliament met, the year but one following, their first effort was to put down the strike, upon which it is hardly necessary to say the proclamation had produced no effect. Complaints were made that the laborers were demanding, and in many cases receiving, double or treble what they were wont, and an attempt was made in the famous Statute of Laborers, 25 Edward III, C. 2, to fix by Act of Parliament a scale of wages, adherence to which on the part of masters and men was to be enforced under penalty of the stocks, which were to be forthwith set up in every town betwixt this and the Feast of Pentecost. Penalties were also imposed upon all such as should flee from one district to another to evade the statute. Six years later, after a recurrence of the plague, we hear in parliamentary petitions of alliances and congregations of masons and carpenters, and oaths betwixt them made, and complaints of fugitive laborers withdrawing themselves from due service. The fact was that laborers constantly escaped from one county to another and from country to town, in the hope of getting better wages. And at last, in 1361, Parliament, undeterred by former experiences of failure, were guilty of the folly and atrocity of passing a downright fugitive slave law, ordaining that a laborer, when caught escaping, should be imprisoned till he had made gray to the party from whose service he fled, and nevertheless, in token of falsity, should be burned in the forehead with an iron formed and made to the letter F. Again in 1368 
and again in the last year of Edward III's reign, attempts were made to enforce the statute of laborers, showing how imperfectly they were obeyed, and how vain was the endeavor to pass laws to the effect that a man should not have a fair day's wages for a fair day's work. The only wonder is that, considering the vast area over which this parliamentary tyranny was felt, an open rebellion was so long delayed. The poll tax, granted in the early part of 1377, but not apparently enforced or severely felt till Richard II's reign, was but the spark which fired the train. Wat Tyler's insurrection, indeed, was sternly repressed, the charters of manumission granted by the king were treacherously withdrawn, and hundreds of the insurgents executed. But the populace had had everything their own way for a week, and under the dread of a servile war, the abolition of compulsory service and all their other demands were tacitly but surely accorded. Thus, within fifty years of the visitation of the Black Death, serfdom and villainage were practically abolished in England, and the laborer released from his bondage to the land was free to carry his thews and sinews to the best market. As for the owners of the soil, they were compelled to abandon the system, hitherto almost universal, of farming their own lands, and as the tenants to whom they had let them were not possessed of sufficient capital to stock and cultivate the large estates hitherto occupied by the bailiff of the lord of the manor, it became necessary at first for them to hire the whole or the greater part of the stock upon the farms at a fixed rent, and for the landlord to turn large quantities of arable land into pasture land. This, however, was only a temporary expedient, and before very long, a system of tenant farming such as we now see had become general. But by this time it had been found out that it was more profitable to grow wool than corn, and vast tracts of land formerly cultivated had accordingly been converted into pasture. Villages had been demolished and small tenants turned adrift from their holdings, and numbers of agriculturists everywhere deprived of employment. One shepherd and his dog, now doing the work of fifty laborers, and so it came to pass that the emancipation of the serfs did not end in England as in other feudal countries, in a minute subdivision of farms, and an all but universal system of peasant proprietorship. The population was not long in recovering its natural level. It is recorded that after the Black Death there was a remarkable increase of fecundity, and double and triple births were not uncommon, but we may well smile at the statement, gravely made by contemporary authorities, that mankind from this time forward suffered a permanent diminution in the number of teeth possessed by their race before the Great Plague. Besides the statute of laborers, many other important enactments were passed in the course of the decade made sadly memorable by the visitation of the Black Death. One of these, the Statute of Treasons, passed in a famous legislative year, 1352, 25 Edward III, is still beneficially felt among us, and may be fairly called one of the bulwarks of English liberty. Up to this time, treason had been so loosely defined that it was within the power of the judges 
to bring within its penalties, as constructive treasons, acts which really amounted to no more than felony or trespass. Thus those who appropriated free warren, or unlawfully took venison, fish, or other goods, were frequently convicted of treason and condemned to death without benefit of clergy. The object of the judge in giving this construction being that whereas in the case of minor misdemeanors the lands of the criminal were forfeit to the lord of the fee, in conviction for high treason the estates were forever lost to the lord and confiscated to the crown. In answer to the repeated petitions of the commons, treason was minutely defined by the famous statute of this year, and from the time of its enactment to the present day, that definition has always formed the kernel of the law on high treason. The same Parliament passed the statutes of purveyors and provisors, to both of which allusion has already been made, the former being intended as a check upon the exactions of the officers whose business it was to procure necessaries for the king's household, the latter upon the Pope's abuse of his power of appointing to benefices in England, which was a frequent subject of legislation in later years of the reign. The statute of provisors passed in this Parliament set forth that whereas the Holy Church of England was founded in the estate of prelacy to inform the people of the law of God and to do hospitalities, alms, and other works of charity, and certain possessions were assigned to sustain the said charge, the Pope of Rome accroaching to himself the seigneuries of such possessions, doth give the same to aliens who did never dwell in England. The said oppressions from henceforth shall not be suffered, and as for the provisors themselves, for so the persons practicing this new device were called, they should become liable to imprisonment. Another abuse had come to such a pitch as to call for the interference of Parliament, it was found that certain attorneys and barristers, Jean de Lay, had got themselves returned as knights of the shire chiefly with the object of promoting the private interests of their professional clients by introducing them into parliamentary petitions. It was therefore ordained that no practicing lawyer should be returned as member for the shire. All lawyers, however, were not expressly excluded as such, which was actually the case in the Parliamentum Inductum of the fifth year of Henry IV's reign. The rest of the enactments passed in these ten years were of more questionable character, all involving more or less of interference with the freedom of trade. King, lords, and commons, equally ignorant of the first rudiments of economic science, seem to have believed that in matters of this kind, that government governed best, which governed most. Penalties were imposed upon regrotters and forestallers, who were banished out of the towns they lived in, and were made liable to the stretch neck or pillory. These hard names were applied to persons who purchased wholesale and made their profit by selling again to the retail dealers. A statute passed in the 27th Edward III provided that no English merchant shall go into Gascoigne there to abide to make bargain on buying of wines before the time of the vintage, that is to say, before the common passage be made to seek wines there, 
and that no merchant go toward such wines to forestall them before they come to the staple or port. In the same year was enacted the Statute of the Staple, which provided that the staples or privileged markets, where and where only certain goods could be sold, should be held at specified places within the realm and not elsewhere, and minute regulations were adopted as to the mode of carrying on trade in the staples and the limit of rent to be charged for houses in those towns. The great staple productions of the kingdom were wool, leather, lead, and tin, and under the statute in question, these articles could be dealt in for exportation by none but a close corporation called the Merchants of the Staple. Four years later, the stockfish of Boston, the salmon of Berwick, and the fish of Bristol, and the herrings round the coast, became the subjects of legislation. No herring was to be bought or sold in the sea till the fishers come into the haven with their herrings, and that the cable of the ship be down to land. And a little later it was made a subject of complaint in the preamble of a statute that many merchants do bargain for herring, and every one of them by malice and envy increaseth upon another, and if one proffer forty shillings, another will offer ten shillings more and so every one surmounteth the other in the bargain, and such proffers extend to more than the price of the herring upon which the fishers proffered to sell it at the beginning. Trade of any kind was absolutely forbidden with Scotland. With the Irish, traffic was not prohibited, but all intermarriage and approximation of the English and Irish races was jealously interdicted. The statute of 31st Edward III runs thus, Whereas by marriages and divers other ties, and the nursing of infant children among the English dwelling in the marches and the Irish, infinite destruction and other evils have happened hitherto. We will and command that such marriages to be contracted between English and Irish and other private ties and nursing of infants shall from henceforth cease, and be altogether done away. Thus early did English legislation begin to sow the seed of the wind, whose crop is the whirlwind in the soil of this unfortunate island. End of section 23